On today's episode of the Keto Camp Podcast, we talk about iron overload, hemochromatosis, with Dr. Christy Sutton. Carrier myth is that if if somebody's a carrier in genetics, they inherited one gene of something and they cannot develop the disease because they don't have two, but they carry the gene so they can pass it on to their kid if that child is unlucky enough to have two parents that are carriers that happen to give them two bad genes. But the carrier genes only have really work if it's a disease that you cannot get if you only have one. You can get hereditary hemochromatosis with one. So calling somebody a carrier is basically contributing to this whole misdiagnosis epidemic that we're in. And it's so frustrating to me. And I keep telling people, you know, this is a myth. And they're like, no, I'm a carrier. I can't get that. My doctor said I can't get that because I'm a carrier. I'm like, they're wrong. They're wrong. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. You can learn more about me over at benazadi.com. Today, we welcome back Christy Sutton. She has been on the Keto Camp Podcast before, back on episode 377, where we discussed her backstory of being diagnosed with Crohn's disease, having part of her intestines removed, losing 78 pounds, and what she did to overcome some serious health complications. And we also got into epigenetics versus genetics, genetic SNPs and testing, et cetera, what to do after brain injury. That's all on that previous episode. On today's episode, we talk about a very important topic, which is iron overload. And before we even get there, we discussed the role of your genes and why it's important to focus on epigenetics, meaning above the gene, beyond the genes, and how your environment determines those genetic triggers and influences. We'll discuss the role of methylation for removing toxins and how methylation exactly works. And then we, of course, get into what she calls the Iron Curse, which is the name of her brand new book coming out. And we actually, this was like, a big episode for me, meaning aha moments, because I realized that my iron levels are too high and they have increased over the years. I actually go over my lab work with Dr. Christy Sutton. I pull it up and share the numbers with her and she is going to, you'll see, reveal how my iron has been trending in the wrong direction. And she gave me personal coaching, which I think will help you as well if you have a lot of iron. So we talk about the specific testing and what I showed with my testing and how that was problematic and then how to reduce iron and how essentially when you have too much iron in your body, your body is inflamed, it is rusting, 
that is not good. And that was huge for me to understand because I am working on decreasing my iron and doing some testing on a consistent basis. And we'll discuss that as well. She first came across iron overload and the problem with it because her husband was misdiagnosed by so many doctors with all these symptoms and he had hemochromatosis. And she discovered that was the problem. And that is a problem for so many people out there. We'll discuss the genes for hemochromatosis, how to test for that, and then her favorite methods for bringing iron down in your body, supplements, donating blood, etc. And she's going to talk about her webinar, which is all about iron overload. And you could register for it. It's called the Iron Curse Webinar. We'll drop a link down below. Uh, this is going to be very important for you to register. We also talk about, well, I also referenced down below her celiac webinar, her MTHFR webinar. All of that could be found down below. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll bring her on to talk all about that in a second. I just want to acknowledge today's Apple podcast rating and review of the day from LKD, LKD, excuse me, five-star review titled, Great Info on Keto and Overall Health. After struggling for several months to figure out keto, I stumbled across Ben's YouTube channel, and I'm glad I did. He explains keto in an easy-to-understand way, and I love that he has specialists and doctors on his channel to further explain how the body works. I have enjoyed his channel so much that I joined the Keto Camp Academy. Thanks, Ben. LKD, I am so glad you joined our amazing group, family, the Keto Camp Academy. And I'm also grateful you listening, you're listening to the Keto Camp Podcast and you watch our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Keto Camp. I am so appreciative of you. Keep up your great work. If you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating or a review on whatever platform you're listening from right now, please pause and do so. It'll make a big, big difference. If you want to download my free vegetable oil allergy card and show that to your servers at restaurants to avoid toxic vegetable oils at restaurants, it works like a charm. I use it all the time. Head over to seedoilcard.com or click the link in the podcast notes down below. If you want to watch the video format of today's interview with Christy Sutton, that's on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash keto camp. Okay, here we go. Let's talk about iron overload with Dr. Christy Sutton. Dr. Christy Sutton earned a Bachelor of Science in Microbiology, Anatomy, and Health and Wellness at the Texas State University in Parker University. She received her doctorate of chiropractic from Parker University. Her serious personal health issues, such as being diagnosed with Crohn's disease at the age of 16, drove her to pursue a career in health care. Here's Dr. Christy Sutton. Dr. Christy Sutton, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So you were on a little over a year ago. For those who didn't listen to that episode, it was episode 377, where we heard about your backstory, uh, Crohn's disease. We heard about your small intestine being removed and a lot of the health challenges you had and kind of what happened in your 20s and what transpired to you being what you're, to you doing what you're doing today, which is studying uh, epigenetics, genetics, and doing all these incredible uh, testing and webinars, which we'll talk about. So if you want to go back to that episode, for those who are watching and listening to hear Christy's story, that's episode 377. We'll link that down below. Today, we're going to go right in and start deep diving into, I want to talk about genetics versus epigenetics and just have an overview in a few minutes for those to understand what exactly is epigenetics? What is more important, 
us expressing the genes or the genes we're born with is, are we just doomed by our genes? So if you could break down, Chris, the epigenetics versus the genetics uh, and how that works. Yes. So, okay. So the genes are what we inherit. That's the DNA that gets passed down to us. And then the, they, they are what they are, you know, you can't change your genes, but the epigenetics is how the environment influences how your genes are turned on or off or expressed. Meaning, you know, are you going to create proteins that are going to make you healthy? Are you going to create proteins that are going to make you unhealthy? And it ultimately comes down to the DNA is what it is, but the environment's going to influence what genes get expressed and what your health is like. And so that's the epigenetics. It, it's Epigenetics stands for beyond genes. And then the genetics, they just are what they are. So, you know, like the genetics, there's like the hand you're dealt if you're playing poker. And then like the epigenetics is like, how good of a poker player are you? Like, what can you do? And that's where, you know, there's a lot of wisdom out there about how to really perfect your game so that you can, you know, live ultimately like the healthiest life you can. And I like to say things like, you know, find your genetic landmines and avoid them. Because if you have, we all have these genetic landmines, but they're not our destiny and we can avoid them by making specific environmental choices. It's a great explanation, the analogy with the poker player. Uh, it makes so much sense. It's like, okay, you're, you're given these cards. You can't change them. This is your, your cards that you're dealt with. But the skills that you have or can acquire will determine how well you do with those deck of cards, right? So although you might have cancer or heart disease or autoimmune or whatever it is in the family history, it does not mean that is in, it's in your history. And obesity specifically, I love to talk about that because we see still to this day that the government is saying, hey, obesity is a genetic problem. It is not your fault. It's the genes you have, and there's nothing you can do about it. And even recently on 60 Minutes, there was a lady that works for the, you know, the, the government, the President Biden, the administration, saying that it is actually a genetic problem. So what are your thoughts on obesity in this day and age being strictly, primarily a genetic issue? I just think it's funny that, you know, like they think the public's stupid enough to believe that because if you look, you know, the genes don't change that quickly. Okay. But just look back like a hundred years ago and we didn't have this epidemic of obesity. Are there some people that are just more prone to be overweight? Yes. And when you live in an environment where, you know, there's not a fast food restaurant on every corner and, you know, high fructose corn syrup and everything, and you have to go through long, prolonged periods of fasting because there's no food, then these genes that make you very effective at, you know, metabolizing food very efficiently and, you know, really holding on to calories as efficiently as possible and storing, they are very helpful just like iron, these genes that increase your ability to absorb iron, like they are genetically very advantageous in a low iron environment, which historically, you know, humans have lived through these bottlenecks of low iron, be it famine or pregnancy or injury or, you know, whatever. And so it's the same with obesity. It's like we have lived through these 
evolutionary bottlenecks where there's not enough calories. And so some people are just better at, you know, making use and storing what they have. It's just the environment has changed so that now we live during a time where there's absolutely zero possibility to most people, unless they're really, you know, trying to be healthy, they're going to get unhealthy foods just because that's what's available to us. And it's such a cop-out to just say there's nothing you can do about it. It's a genetic problem. Um, it, yeah. It, 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 yeah. it makes people have a, a victim mindset. Well, and you're going to see more of that now that we have, you know, like the Ozembic stuff on the market. Um, you're going to see more of like, oh, you know, this is a disease that we can treat with this drug. And you're going to see the same thing as they develop drugs, for example, like for Alzheimer's. You're going to see more like genetic testing where they're going to be like, oh, you have this gene, we can give you this drug. Um, And it's just ultimately a, a way to funnel more money into drug companies' pockets is my personal opinion on it. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a, it's a brilliant business model, but not ethical or good for the human population. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. I, I, I just mean, think it, it's funny. It is ridiculous. And I, and I always reference that study, uh, Dr. Randy Jurdle, two identical mice, and one was introduced to BPA, the other was not. And the one that was introduced to the BPA toxin triggered the obesity gene. The other one was nice and lean and healthy. It's like, how could that be if they have the same exact genetics? It's like, of course, the environment stimulated that, that gene. And I, I talked about that on my NTHFR webinar. And remember, it was the pregnant mothers that were introduced to B- BPA. But the pre- pregnant mothers who were both introduced, they were actually, they were both introduced to BPA. But the pregnant mothers that were not given methylation support, they had offspring that were obese and yellow. And then the pregnant mothers that were introduced to BPA, but were given the methylation support to detoxify the BPA, they did not have the obese yellow mice, which are unhealthy. They had the healthier mice, which were not obese or yellow. So it was the pregnant mothers. They were both exposed to BPA. One was given what they needed to detox. The other wasn't. But the mice were genetically identical. Same DNA, identical twins totally different outcome. Perfect epigenetic. It's brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Exactly. So that's promising because even if we cannot avoid toxins, which we can't really, they're everywhere. If you could improve your methylation, uh, that means you have a huge advantage. So maybe you could clarify for those who are like, what is methylation? Explain what exactly that that is inside the body. Yeah. Okay. So methylation is basically technically, like if you look at biochemistry and chemistry, what methylation is, is adding a carbon group from basically one area to the other, one molecule to the other, or removing that carbon group. But the methylation is really adding the carbon group. And so, but it sounds simple, but it totally changes the chemical structure. And that change in the chemical structure totally changes like the outcome. So it's changing the epigenetics. And what methylate, there's an important methylation detox pathway. So we have like seven different detox pathways and methylation is a key one that's very important for hormones, toxins, a lot of these toxins that look like hormones. And so basically a large number of people, 
either because of an, a poor environment, a poor genes, or both have issues with methylation. And these are like, you know, environmental and genetic landmines that there are simple like hacks to, you know, if you want to talk about biohacking or whatever, there are simple things that you can do and really in this day and age should do if you're in the, you know, the wrong environment or have the wrong genes, which is pretty much everybody falls in one of those two categories, if not both. And they're simple, but they're super powerful. And as we live in a world that's becoming increasingly toxic, you know, we have to adapt and become smarter because our environment is changing much faster than our ability to, you know, naturally adapt to it. And that's where I think it's, it's an idealistic but flawed thinking to think, oh, we can just healthy diet our way out of this because like micro microplastics are everywhere toxins are everywhere i'm not saying diet's not important it's the foundation of health we all can and should do better with that and as good as possible but when you have these other powerful like nutritional supports that can make a key difference it's really kind of in my opinion stupid not to use those yeah i agree that's <laughs> well said so yeah methylation it's kind of like putting the barcode on, on um, toxins or th things that need to be eliminated or moved through the body. It's this barcode and the body recognizes it. Okay, this is toxic. Let's take care of it. Uh, and that's what we want to improve. So uh, there are ways to do that, which we'll get into. So uh, I wanted to stay on the obesity thing um, because a lot of people come into my world, Christy, and they find keto because they want to lose weight. But they have friends and family members who tell them to weight loss is simply a byproduct of losing, of exercising more and eating less, right? So being in a calorie deficit, which kind of is, is a slap in the face to how incredible the human body is. So I want to hear your thoughts on what do you think of that approach to lose weight? Just telling people to eat less and move, me, uh, move more. Does that work long-term? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think everybody's different. And for some people that might you know, be correct based on their situation. You know, they need to eat less and move more. That generally that there is an element of you need to eat healthier and move. Having said that, it's kind of an oversimplification in my mind. And it also, it's kind of setting people up for failure because like you said, it's a slap in the face because so many people, they've are, they're trying so hard and that's why they're going to things like Ozembic. It's like, okay, you got a pill for me, I'll do it because like I've tried this other way, they think, but maybe they haven't really tried all the different options because those were not explained to them by, you know, the doctor who said eat less and move more, which frankly, I think like so many things in medicine right now, it's kind of a a cop-out by the doctor because if you really want to help your patient, you need to be able to spend time with them because it takes time to figure out what their problem is, you know, know how to treat it and communicate it to them in a way that they're going to understand and resonate with. And those three things take time. But most doctors are at such a you know, stress about not being able to spend enough time with people because they're all, you know, insurance isn't paying for time. And, you know, they, you know, make a lot of money. And so the more people they see, the more money they make. And so it's all about, you know, get them in and out. And so I just don't think that they really want to spend the time to one, explain it to their patients because that takes time. And two, maybe to really like learn about it. 
I also think that as a clinician, we tend to be much better at treating something if we have lived through it ourselves. And so a lot of doctors like haven't lived through a lot of these obesity issues or many other issues that they're treating, and they would probably be much better at treating them if they had to live through it themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's really the system that is just broken. You know, these doctors are well-intentioned and they want to do good. But like you said, the system is broken and you you have the ability to overcome these conditions and diagnosis or whatever it is. So telling people to just eat less and move more, it's just a distraction. And I did it for so many years when I first started out and I realized it's just not helping people. Let's transition or let me ask the question now that we've spoken about methylation. What are your favorite ways to improve methylation? What are some things we can do starting today? Well, you know, as far as like diet goes, beets are a great methylation support. I love just beet juice, eating beets. That's great for methylation support. As far as um, nutritional supplements, you know, there's things like choline, methylfolate, methylcobalamin, TMG. Um, These are things that nutritionally just kind of help you methylate. But what a lot of people don't realize that is that you also need vitamin B2 to basically activate some of the methylation genes, like specifically the MTHFR, which is like a well-known methylation gene. So really you need these specific B vitamins in the activated form to really like keep the methylation pathways going so that you can ultimately create SAMI, which is kind of like the the silver nugget at the end of the methylation pathway. Beets, beet juice, uh, some right supplementation. I, I've been using uh, Moore's from Systemic. Is that what you use this as well? Systemic form. Yeah, Moore's is yeah. great. Moore's is great. And you know what? I don't get too like married to just one because I found you know some people do better on one than the others. You know, and I'm okay with that. But it's good to have good options to try because everybody's so different. You just kind of have to be flexible with, okay, let's try this. But that's a great one. That's a great option. Yeah, I agree with you. I like the uh, idea of uh, also rotating supplements, but also one supplement, one brand might work better for one person versus the other. And you won't know until you kind of experiment with them. So I agree with you on that. Hey, when was the last time you bit into a juicy burger or a perfectly cooked steak and thought to yourself, This is the best thing I've ever tasted. If it's been a while, it's probably because most meat products are conventionally raised, which not only affects the flavor profile, but significantly diminishes the beneficial nutrients and minerals. And believe it or not, even products that are labeled as grass-fed or ethically raised to make you think they're high quality are often finished on grain or in factory farms, which is why I am so excited to share something with you today that will not only help you avoid the hormones, antibiotics, and pesticide residues that diminish the taste of conventionally raised meat, but could also save you nearly $1,000 over the next year on your grocery bill. And the best part, this may be the best tasting thing you've had in a long time. So what the heck am I talking about? I'm talking about Wild Pastures Meat Delivery. They provide the highest quality meats from small, regenerative, family-run farms here in the United States that prioritize sustainability and animal welfare. Their beef is 100% grass-fed. Their pork and poultry are pasture-raised, something you won't find anywhere in the grocery store, resulting in meats that are not only healthier for you, but also better for the environment. One of the reasons why me and my fiance Natasia loves wild pastures is that we can opt out 
out of supporting harmful conventional farming practices and instead support small, family-run farms without spending a fortune. And the convenience doesn't stop there. They offer delivery straight to your door so you can enjoy delicious, high-quality meats without even leaving your house. No matter where you are in the lower 48 states, Wild Pastures has got you covered. Not only is this the most convenient way to get your meat products, but Wild Pasture meats are better for you nutritionally, and they're higher in the total nutrients, phytonutrients, antioxidants, key fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, proteins, and amino acids. And today, for keto campers, for a limited time, you can get 20% off every box plus free shipping for life and $15 off your first box. This is a crazy deal, and I hope you take advantage of it. So make the switch to Wild Pastures today and save nearly $1,000 on your grocery bill while feeling healthier and enjoying the best-tasting meats of your life. All you need to do is go to the link in the podcast notes down below. Everything is already applied. All you got to do is click that link, customize your order, and you'll have some delicious, healthy-tasting meats very soon. Head to the podcast notes down below, click the link, enjoy your wild pastures. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. Let's talk a little bit about iron, right? Um, we were talking a little off air about ferritin and my scores, which I want to get to, but why did you're writing a new book? The new book is all about iron. It's called The Iron Curse. I'd love to hear why you decided to write a book all about this topic, and then let's get into some of the specifics of the book. Yeah, so, okay, well, it all started when I was, I married a man with undiagnosed hereditary hemochromatosis, basically. And um, not too long after we got married, I, you know, he left his blood work on the counter and from his doctor's visit. And I realized, oh, your ferritin's high and your liver enzymes are high. You need to donate blood. And then, you know, we got busy with life and having a baby and work and, you know, all that. And I continued to be like, oh, you need to donate blood. And and he kind of stopped listening to me because at that point in time, we're well into our marriage. And like, you know, he's just moved past that part of his brain. <laughs> yeah. But the problem's not going away, right? And so, and his doctor's not saying anything. And I start, you know, ordering labs on him to kind of do a little bit more digging because, you know, like things are not as they should be. At least that's, I'm aware of this. And um, I'm simultaneously around this time writing my first book, which has a chapter on the hemochromatosis gene. And I'm really kind of introducing myself to this whole world of genetics. And I'm fascinated and overwhelmed, but I, I realize that my husband has this gene and that's why he has high iron that's causing him to have liver problems. But his medical doctor is not saying anything about it. And like so many people, he thinks if he really had a problem, it wouldn't just be his, you know, wife that was telling him about it. It would be his doctor, which is a reasonable thought, although it is flawed. And so we go through the path of getting him officially diagnosed because he's clearly, you know, having elevated liver enzymes, having high iron, not listening to me about donating blood. So we go to the gastroenterologist, I give them the genes, I give them the labs, they, you know, listen to me, dismiss me, go through the next three to six months of doing all these extra tests, 
take us down a misdiagnosis rabbit hole, which I have to pull us out of. Otherwise, we would have been in that rabbit hole for at least a year. And then ultimately, because of me pulling us out of the misdiagnosis rabbit hole, the gastroenterologist is like, oh, I'm referring you to the hematologist. I think you have polycythemia vera. They misdiagnosed him as having autoimmune hepatitis, which he didn't have. Anyways, so we go to the hematologist. I give him the labs, give him the genes. I'm expecting to be dismissed. I'm not. I'm very happy because the hematologist is like hereditary hemochromatosis, easy, treat it with removing blood, and we're good. And I'm like, yay. And my husband's like, that's the first doctor you've liked. I'm like, no, that's not true. He's just smart. So I like him. And yes. Okay. So then basically my husband gets treated. Eventually his liver enzymes come down. How high, how high were his uh, ferritin and liver enzymes? Well, I go through the case study in the iron curse and I'm going to guess, but I can't remember because this was so long ago, but his liver enzymes were not that high. Most doctor, like most doctors wouldn't say anything because they were not that high, but they were higher than they should be. And they were continuing to tick up. So they never broke a hundred, which if you look at a lot of labs and people that have hemochromatosis, they often do break a hundred easily, but they would creep up like forties, fifties, sixties. I think they got up to like eighties before he finally got the official diagnosis. So things were not good, but by modern medical standards, there was a lot of, uh, we heard, he was told this is mild, probably just mild fatty liver. It's very common. Basically, you need to, to your point, you need to just exercise and, you know, eat healthier. And my husband, I'm like, this man does not need to exercise and eat healthier. He's not like perfect, but that's not his problem. Okay. Very dismissive. And so basically my husband begins to get better. Also his hemoglobin and hematocrit were high, which is common with hemochromatosis. So we also, because of the labs that I've been ordering on him, he has high DHEA occasionally, like it'll go up and down. And this I thought would get better with the iron lowering because when you lower your iron, you lower stress on your body and that can lower DHEA. It did not. So we got referred to the endocrinologist. So then I do the whole thing. I give the endocrinologist the, the lay of the land. And then I, at the end of me doing that, I pull up my husband's shirt and I show her his stomach and I say, and he has these striae, which are like these little marks. They look like stretch marks. And I wonder if he might have Cushing's. And she's like, no, he doesn't have Cushing's. He doesn't even look like somebody with Cushing's. His blood sugar is normal. He, his labs don't look like somebody with Cushing's. I'm like, okay. So fast forward, make a long story short, a, a longer story shorter. He, about six months later, is having brain surgery to have a pituitary tumor removed because he has Cushing's. Huh. He has a pituitary tumor that is causing him to have Cushing's. Wow. And I believe that this pituitary tumor was caused by him having high iron because high iron causes extreme damage to the pituitary gland, specifically the anterior pituitary gland, which is where his tumor is he had it removed it's growing back we're gonna go in for surgery again so he got it removed and now it's growing back is what you said and he has to get it removed again 
Yes, which is very common. Okay, even though the iron's back down, it could still grow back, or the iron's not back down. The iron is fine. We're we're good with the iron. Okay. But once you have a tumor, they did not remove it all the way. Okay, got it. Which usually happens. They they removed most of it, and then it slowly grew back, and now we're at a point where he has high cortisol again, which is dangerous. So that's why his DHEA was through the roof. Yes. That's, you, you, you saw that clue, and, and at first they kind of dismissed it, and then yes. boom, tumor, yes. Cushings. And, and all along, you know, and he's a little bit overweight because he has Cushings. And of all along, because cortisol, you know, it's all, in the, it's all in the belly, the weight gain. And all along, we're being told, we caught this so early, this is mild. And then before that, before catching it and saying it's mild, it's like, you just need to exercise and eat better. And it's like, okay, if we listen to that bad advice, my husband would probably be dead, honestly, because he was a recipe for a heart attack. His blood pressure was going through the roof. His blood was thick from the hemochromatosis. And he was just a ticking time bomb. And it took, you know, his wife being... Frankly, self-admittedly, kind of like an anal retentive, like I'm very curious and I'm, I'm a little bit anal retentive about health and always asking why. And I wrote a book on genes. <laughs> and so I figured out my husband has this gene because I wrote a book on it. You know what I'm saying? Like it took so many things happening for my husband to get diagnosed early, quote unquote, and get out of that whole paradigm of just exercise and lose weight and eat less. Fatty liver, it's normal. That's crazy. Like if it took that long for you and your situation, and you compare that to the average person, like I know that's what you're saying. And it, when I walked through that with him, I was like, the lay person, the average person, is they're screwed. They're totally screwed. Because I didn't realize until I was going to my husband's appointments, they were not asking the right questions. He wasn't giving them the right info because he didn't, he's not a medical person. He didn't know what to tell him, but they weren't asking the right questions. And that's when I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Here, let me give you the information. You're not asking the questions. He's not giving it to you. And that's when we finally started moving forward. Lay people are screwed. Yeah, it's, it's so ridiculous. So for those listening and watching, chances are you're not going to a regular doctor. You're probably seeing somebody functional, um, good job, but you probably know somebody who's probably in the system. Once the system gets you, it's so hard to get out of that, you know, that white coat syndrome, you trust the doctors. But I mean, Christy's story is the story of millions of people out there. Please ask the right questions, do your research, read the books. You know, you have your book coming out. So that'll be a good resource in terms of this topic of iron overload. So, all right, let's, let's fast forward now. Your husband is about to have this, the second surgery. Okay. So my husband gets diagnosed. Fast forward. I go back to practice. I'm, I'm practicing. At this point in time, I have my genetic detoxification report. I'm, you know, I'm ordering labs on my patients. And what I discover, because I'm now like quite sophisticated at the genetic and lab piece of this is holy moly, we have an epidemic of undiagnosed hereditary hemochromatosis. And what do I do? I do what I'm supposed to do. I'm a chiropractor, so I can diagnose, I cannot treat hereditary hemochromatosis. So I have to refer them to the hematologist. What happens, what, what I have experienced is that I diagnose them, they go to their primary care doctor and they're told, you're fine, don't worry about it. And totally, they're dismissed, minimized. Oh, and a lot geez. of them for that reason, to this day, haven't been properly treated. 
And so, and this is like blowing my mind. This is really stressful for me. Many of my patients do listen to me and like, you know, they get better, but I realize that we have an epidemic of undiagnosed hereditary hemochromatosis and non-hereditary hemochromatosis because you don't have to have the gene to have high iron. And so I get really good at it. And then I realize, like, oh, wow, how awful are all of these other people? This is disturbing. And then I diagnosed my colleague's five-year-old daughter with having hereditary hemochromatosis. And that's a whole nother story. Like, we, we'll have to talk about that another day. But what I'm telling you is I went through a lot of different steps. And I was on a podcast with somebody. We were talking about iron. And I kind of just made that decision in my head, like, I need to write a book about this. Like, this is really important. And I know a lot about this. And most people don't. And like, and now I have a daughter that has this gene. And she already has, for a nine-year-old, high ferritin. And we only know that because I asked the doctor to order the labs. And the doctor never even reported the results. I had to go onto the portal and realize it was high ferritin and do something about it because they didn't even report it to me. They didn't want to order it and they didn't want to report it to me. So like, I'm just trying to really like do a service. I feel like I have a story to tell. I have pretty good knowledge about how, what's happening and what to do about it. And I've just, I've got to get this out of me. Yeah, you absolutely do. And I'm glad you are doing it. What's the name of the gene? Okay, so the hemochromatosis gene, it's HFE, and there's two of them. Say it again? What is it? Um, HFE. HFE. There's two big HFE genes. Do you have one of them? I don't know. Um, okay, we're going to yeah, find, we'll find out. Yeah, we'll find out. I want to so, read you some of my lab markers and get your input, too. Okay, good. So... There's two hemochromatosis genes. There's one called HFE-C282Y, and there's HFE-H63. And the first one, C282Y, is considered like the highest risk because both of those genes increase iron absorption, but the C282Y increases iron absorption a little bit more than the other one, the H63. Now, my hus husband has one of the H63, only one. And there is a whole school of people, and by school of people, I mean the CDC and like every major governing body that is putting medical misinformation out there saying that you cannot develop hereditary hemochromatosis with only one gene. And that if you have that HFE H63 gene that my husband has, you are not at a risk at all. Wow. Which is blowing my mind because I'm like, half of the people, most of the people that I diagnose with hereditary hemochromatosis, they only have one gene. This whole two gene myth, I call it the carrier myth. It's got to go. Like, it's got to go. And so I write about that in the Iron Curse and I teach about that in the Iron Curse webinar, but it, it's a carrier myth. There's The carrier myth is that if... If somebody's a carrier in genetics, they inherited one gene of something and they cannot develop the disease because they don't have two, but they carry the gene so they can pass it on to their kid if that child is unlucky enough to have two parents that are carriers that happen to give them two bad genes. Okay, does that make sense? Mm-hmm, yep. Okay. But the carrier genes only really work if it's a disease that you cannot get if you only have one. You can get hereditary hemochromatosis with one. So calling somebody a carrier is basically contributing to this whole misdiagnosis 
epidemic that we're in. And it's so frustrating to me. I talk about it in the Iron Curse. I'm really the only one that's talking about this. And I keep telling people, you know, this is a myth. And they're like, no, I'm a carrier. I can't get that. My doctor said I can't get it because I'm a carrier. I'm like, they're wrong. They're wrong. That's uh, that's criminal, first of all, to, to say something like that. Um, it is. And it's coming from the highest, highest, highest people. I'm not surprised by that. I know that uh, when we last spoke, you recommended, I'm not sure if you still do, but was it 23andMe as uh, testing this? Would that tell you about this gene or is there a different test that you would recommend? I still use that. It's like a lot, like I don't care who you use. I use that one because I'm just familiar with it. A lot of people have already done it when they come to see me as a patient. So it's like something you should be familiar with. The other reason I use the 23andMe, which does check for the hemochromatosis genes, is because I then download that DNA, like the raw data, and I upload it to my genetic detoxification report. And then, you know, that reports on the iron genes too. And then like 300 other ones that some are more important than others. But everybody needs to know if they have these iron genes, the hemochromatosis genes, almost 30% of the population has one of these or more. Oh, really? They're oh, very common. Wow. Very common. But it's also very common to have undiagnosed high iron. Yeah. So I have a few questions on that. 30, 30% of the population have at least one of these. I, I want to save a note there. So I, I'm, I'm finally going to do my DNA uh, testing. Not with 23andMe, but I just got um, the DNA company. I think they they probably they should test for that. It was a very uh, expensive um, DNA test. So I'm going to do that soon, and I should know if I have that along with other genes. But I, I want to share with you... I did lab work a few months ago, three months ago, uh, December of last year. And so there's a few things that I'll share with you. You mentioned hemoglobin, hematocrit, ferritin, and liver enzymes. So my ferritin has always been over 300 every time I've tested. So this past, it was 349. And then my liver enzymes were fine, 1821, ASD, Hemoglobin was... 16.2, so it was a little bit higher in that range that goes up to 17.7. Hematocrit was 47.6. The range goes up to 51. So those are on a little bit on the higher end. But yeah, thoughts on those, on my specific markers. What is your serum iron? Iron, total iron's 126. Iron saturation, 44. Your 44 iron saturation? Did they do TIBC or UIBC? Yeah, uh, TIBC 289, UIBC 163. So that's low. That's low. You're out of range yeah. low on that UIBC. Yeah. Almost out yeah. of range low on the TIBC. It is, uh, TIBC was 289, the low was 240, the low range is 240. So yeah, close to that low range. And then for the UIBC was... The low is 111. I was 163. So yeah, both are on the lower end on the range. Yep. Okay. So have you donated blood before? Something that I've always been saying I should do more often and I don't. I probably do lab work once or twice a year. So you're, you're hinting that I should do this more often. How often should I donate blood? Well, it really depends on the lab work. It really depends. Everybody's different. There's no like formula, right? Because there's so many environmental factors. Do you, I assume you eat a lot of red meat, right? I eat a lot of meat. I do a lot of primarily meat-based diet, yes. I don't eat, cook out of cast iron skillets or anything like that, but I do eat a lot of red meat. Yeah, so, you know, 
based on your labs, you definitely have high iron because your iron sat's at 44 and your ferritin was three, what was it? Ferritin was 349. And they're creeping up, right? Like every year you do your labs. Let me see. Uh, let me see. So the uh, 20, I have one from 2020. My ferritin was... Ferritin was 275. Um, and then in 2020, earlier in 2020, before that, I did it twice. Where's your iron sat last time with that? Iron sat was 24. Okay, so you're jumping up like fast. Okay, so yeah. my guess is that you either have hereditary hemochromatosis, if you have that gene, or non-hereditary hemochromatosis if you don't have that gene. Now, I have a lot to say about this, but let's start with the definitions because it's helpful to have a definition. So the definition of hemochromatosis is high iron saturation with a high ferritin, okay? Now, you can either do that with or without a gene because it's just easier to get high with a hemochromatosis gene because you're going to absorb more iron. Now, the really important question here is, what is considered high? What's technically high for iron saturation is over 45. That is the technical number that is the threshold for hemochromatosis. Now, the problem is that a lot of labs allow people to go up to like 55 or higher before it's considered out of range. Rarely do you see a lab that cuts you off at 45 for iron saturation, which is weird because that's the technical definition that the hematologists and, you know, all the doctors have decided. Isn't that weird? That's interesting. Yeah, this, this lab corp says 55, right? So, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, okay. So that's a problem. The other problem is ferritin. Now, the ranges for ferritin are really kind of moronic, if you ask me. To allow somebody's ferritin to go up to like four or 500 before saying it's out of range high is just kind of like, I don't get it. I'm sorry. That doesn't make sense. If you want to be like a healthy human being, nobody should have a ferritin that high. And now there's this new movement that I keep hearing about and it kind of makes me like have a little bit of vomit in my mouth when I hear it. But there's this new movement that if a ferritin's like a thousand or below, you're fine. And I'm just kind of like, do you Whoa. care if you're human, if your patients live? Like, are we trying to kill people earlier just so they don't have to get Medicare? Like, I, what's going on here? And so my threshold for ferritin, if, if we're going to say hi, I, I'm going to tell you what my threshold is for ferritin. Okay. What is it? For men, it's 150. And for females, it's 120. And honestly, I'll often just say you're over 100. Your iron saturations near or above 45. There is no reason for you to get any higher. You can, you know, like immediately start, you know, preventative, prophylactic iron. I call them the iron protocols, which include not just donating blood, if you can donate blood, but also diet, nutrition, lifestyle. And so those are kind of my thresholds, but I always want to see that genetic piece because if somebody has that gene, like I suppose you do, 
have at least one of them. My guess is you have one. And then you see that in combination with like your labs, you know, a ferritin over 100, iron saturation at or near 45 or above 45, then you kind of know like why this is happening and where this is headed if left unchecked, in my opinion. Like what's the point of just letting things get higher and higher when we know that a high ferritin can take like 20 years of your life off and increase your risk, not just for a shorter life, but a lower quality life. And that, you know, high iron is just going to cause damage. You know, why, why even go there? And so those are the numbers that I have in the iron curse. And I know I'm going to get some slack for that. Like, well, those are not the technical numbers, but I don't care. I don't care anymore. Hey, Keto Camper. What if there was an easy way to help detoxify your body, ease stress, unwind, and hey, even burn more calories. What I'm talking about is sauna usage. Now, there's a lot of studies that show the benefits of using a sauna, and it could be kind of complicated because they're expensive, and typically you have to go to a facility to use a sauna. What I love about my sauna is that it's a blanket that I use at the comfort of my own home. I use the one from Bond Charge. And sauna blankets work by raising your heart rate to that of physical exercise so you burn calories while you're relaxing. And you could burn up to 600 calories in one session. Sweating also helps flush out toxins like heavy metals from your body. And elevating your heart rate while relaxing releases endorphins, which can leave you feeling euphoric. I feel like I just got a 60-minute massage when I get out of this thing. It works by using infrared light, which heats the body directly rather than the air around you like a traditional sauna. This means you get the same benefits at a lower heat. You also don't need to have your head in the heat like a traditional sauna. It's very easy to use. You can enjoy a session of 30 to 45 minutes while relaxing, reading, watching TV, or meditating. It's easy to clean. It's low EMF, especially compared to other brands out there. Simple and easy to get set up. And even more important, you, Keto Camper, are offered a nice coupon code for Bond Charge's products, including their infrared sauna blanket. So head over to bondcharge.com slash ketocamp and use the coupon code ketocamp at checkout to get 15% off your order. We'll drop that link down below along with the coupon code in the podcast notes. Okay, let's get right back to this episode question for you. I'm going to donate blood more frequently. That is a goal of mine. I'll, I'll do that to help lower my ferritin and lower the iron saturation. You mentioned diet, nutrition, lifestyle. I have that pretty honed in, but I do eat a lot of red meat. So for me specifically, knowing that I eat mostly meat, I'm not always keto. I go in and out of ketosis. I take care of a lot of things in my environment, but I still have the high iron. I'm going to do my genetics, so we'll get that those results what else can I personally do? And I'm sure your book and your course has all that. I know, and I'll read it, I promise. But give me some coaching. What else can I do right now for myself? Okay. So until you really get your iron lower, which you you can get it lower very quickly with donating blood, okay? That's the fastest way to get it down because when you donate blood, you are basically just removing iron from your body because what is in blood? Red blood cells. What is in red blood cells? Little 
hemoglobins that are just bound to iron. There's a lot of different things in blood. It's mostly iron. So this is why removing blood is the fastest way to lower iron if you can donate blood. This is also why females tend to have fewer problems with high iron and more problems with low iron because they're they are donating blood to their menstrual pads all the time. But then it's an issue when they reach postmenopause, right? Well, okay, yeah. So premenopausal females are much more likely to be low in iron. Once they get postmenopausal, you know, their iron levels creep up, especially if they have that gene. Although I've seen premenopausal females with that gene that become high in iron, even though they're menstruating and everything. It's not uncommon. And so it's really, you know, blood loss is a, you know, between menstrual cycles, pregnancy, childbearing, females are more likely to be low in iron. So removing blood, definitely, that's going, you know, definitely that's a wonderful thing for you to do at this point in time. I would, you know, encourage you to maybe consider like drinking green tea or coffee like with a meal because that will actually decrease the iron absorption. So these are like simple things that you could do to just decrease iron absorption. You could scale back a little bit on the red meat and maybe do more like lighter meats or fish until you get your iron levels in a healthy range. Once your iron levels are like managed in a healthy range, I found that people can eat, you know, pretty much as much red meat as they want. I know my husband eats as much red meat as he wants. He doesn't have problems, but he's also, you know, being managed properly, you know, doing the iron curse protocols and whatnot. So there's so many different things, but there's also some really great nutritional supplements that can really rapidly lower iron. And um, I've even, you know, seen some people that they don't donate blood. They just knew that do the nutritional supplements, their iron goes down. And um, sometimes can it goes sure? down like too low. Yeah, of course. So there, there's a lot of them, but probably like some of the most important ones are curcumin is really good because curcumin binds to iron and it lowers it. Curcumin is also a wonderful antioxidant that, you know, is great for the liver and the brain and the heart and all of these organs that tend to get destroyed by high iron because, you know, high iron, it destroys your liver. It destroys your heart. It destroys your brain. It destroys your pancreas, causing blood sugar problems. It destroys your pituitary gland, causing all sorts of hormonal issues. It destroys the gonads, the ovaries, the testes, creating infertility issues. And then, you know, it goes to the joints and it causes joint problems. It causes mitochondrial dysfunction. It's really like, if you really want to like get the low hanging fruit, that's the, like the biggest problem, go for the iron. Like go for the high iron. And there's so many people that are being misdiagnosed as having like gout or like high iron can cause Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, you know, high uric acid, high inflammatory markers. Like there are so many different problems that high iron can cause. Most people get misdiagnosed as having a symptom of high iron, not as having the primary problem, which is causing the, you know, the root cause, which is the high iron. And so, you know, I digress, but the beauty of the protocols is like, we're not just fixing, you know, all these other things. We're also, you know, fixing the root cause. So 
go back to some of the supplements, curcumin, it binds to iron, it lowers it. It also helps to really help protect and heal up your organs because what high iron does is it causes a lot of oxidative stress. So what is oxidative stress? Oxidative stress is like rust on your body. And in my book and in the webinar, I have a picture of an apple that I cut in half. And like for three days, I just put lemon juice on one side and nothing on the other. And so the apple that had the lemon juice did not turn brown because, you know, it had the antioxidants to protect it. It didn't have the oxidative stress. And then the apple that had no lemon juice, it turned brown because that's the oxidative stress. Well, somebody that has a lot of iron, they're like an apple that's turning brown because they have all that oxidative stress and rust. And so the beauty of like these supplements is you can decrease oxidative stress too. So, okay, curcumin, quercetin is really good because quercetin actually like kind of addresses the real problem with people that have hemochromatosis, hereditary hemochromatosis. And that is that when you have this gene, you have a low level of hepcidin, okay? And Hepcidin is something that a lot of people are not aware of, but it's really important and you can't measure it on labs. It's just measured in like research. So you can't measure it on labs. I wish you could because I would be running that test every day. But basically what hepcidin does is if it's high, then it will decrease iron absorption. And if it's low, it will increase iron absorption. So the way it does that is it stops absorption from the intestines, but it also causes like the iron to be sequestered in like the liver and the macrophages. And so when you see somebody that has anemia of inflammation, which is where you have a high ferritin because you're inflamed, not because you have high iron. So there's people that have high ferritin, not because they have high iron because ferritin is an inflammatory marker. You can have high ferritin and be anemic. It's called anemia of inflammation. And people that have anemia of inflammation, high ferritin with anemia, low iron, they have high hepcidin. And their body's making high hepcidin, which is causing them to have the high ferritin to store the iron as ferritin to get it out of the blood. Because the hepcidin is something the immune system uses so that it can protect the body from bacteria because bacteria love to thrive on iron. That was a lot. I just threw a lot at you. No, that's good. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't really heard much about hepcidin, and it's interesting that we're not able to test it. Isn't it a hormone? Isn't it, it, it's a peptide. Oh, it's actually a peptide. Okay, so yeah, I don't think we've ever discussed that on the podcast, but that's interesting because you're right. There are situations where somebody might have high ferritin but low iron. And it's like, how does that make yeah. sense? You just explained it. Well, that's why I had to ask you so many questions. Yeah. Like a lot of people ask me about iron and they'll be like, my ferritin such and such. Do I have a problem? Yes, but I can't tell you I if it's just data. a high iron problem. Yeah. Like I need, I need it all. I need the whole picture, you know? And unfortunately, most people, their doctor is not even ordering a ferritin or what I call a full iron panel, which is ferritin, TIBC, UIBC, serum iron, iron saturation. You also need that CBC to give you the hemoglobin and the hematocrit, the red blood cells, MCV, MCH. 
And then you really need a, a CMP to get the liver enzymes. So like bare minimum, and those have, they should just be ordered on everybody. But I agree. Most doctors order the CBC and the CMP and they always order the lipids because everybody wants to know what their cholesterol is, <laughs> but they true. don't yeah. order the high, the iron panel. High iron causes high cholesterol and cardiovascular disease all the time. It's, it drives me nuts. So occasionally somebody like their doctor will order the ferritin, but none of the other stuff. And I'm kind of like, okay. Um, yeah. It's not going to give you enough. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a learning opportunity for those getting lab work. Get all of those markers. Get a full iron panel like the markers that I got. And it's not that expensive. It's not. No, it's not. Okay. So curcumin, quercetin. I'm 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 guessing like what resveratrol, another antioxidant. Yeah. Without- okay. Yeah. So so the quercetin increases the hepcidin, so you're going to absorb less iron. Resveratrol doesn't actually affect iron levels. However, it is a part of the protocols that I have because it has been shown to be extremely protective for the heart against iron-induced damage. And after all, you know, if somebody has high iron, they're at a much higher risk for cardiovascular disease, and the resveratrol really helps to protect them from that. But, you know, it's really, it's really kind of fun, like, if you're monitoring your heart rate and, like, your heart rate variability... I am. Yeah, I have my aura ring. Yeah, so see what it is after you donate blood. Your heart rate variability is probably going to increase and your resting heart rate's probably going to decrease because you've just decreased this like the stress off your body and you're probably going to wake up a day or two after and just feel kind of more energetic. Like people will say, you know, I just looked in the mirror and it's like my eyes were brighter and, you know, my skin's brighter. And it's like, yes, because you were like rusting out from the inside and high iron, you know, it does actually cause your skin to get dark. People tend to have this kind of like darkening bronzing of the skin. So bronze. Do I have that? Do I, do I have that Christy? Well, Not it's yet. all relative, you know, it's all relative. <laughs> you, this just, this could be your beautiful, you know, Italian skin and, you know, good for you. I'm an Irish. Or, person, or so. you know, if, if I don't do something about it, it might be in my near future, right? Because it's, I'm, I'm still, I'm going to be proactive here and I don't want to be reactive. But I think, you know, if you do before and afters, before you donate and after, you probably will see a difference. Like your, your fiance. With my skin? Likely. It might take a little okay. while. It takes a little while for, you know, the melanocytes to go down. But, you know, you are going to probably feel different. Your fiancé might even notice a difference. Not everybody's the same. But bronze diabetes is hemochromatosis. And they call it that because hemochromatosis damages the pancreas, causing diabetes, but it also causes the skin to get darker. So people develop bronze diabetes. Interesting. It's very fascinating. Yeah. There's so much. Yeah. That is so, so fascinating. This is a very important topic, especially for my audience, because my audience, a lot of them are doing carnivore and I I have nothing against carnivore unless you do it long-term, but you're eating a lot of red meat. And if you're not getting these lab values and you don't understand it, like you could be in for some trouble. And that's why it's so, I think this conversation is so important. And you gave us a lot, but I know that you have a webinar all about this and several different webinars. I'd love for you to share about that. And then your book, The Iron Curse. I can't wait to dive into that. Like I'm like so fascinated after this conversation, but share about the webinars and where they can learn more about this topic and some of the other cool things you're doing. 
Sure. Okay. So I just concluded my first Iron Curse webinar, which was five different live webinars that was really over six hours of material. We did it over a series of five weeks. And it was like, it was so great. It was so well received. And so I recorded it. So you can go back and watch that. Now, when I launch the book, I'm pretty sure I'm going to do it again live just because, you know, I'm already ready to change it up. You know, it's like the evolution. You just never stop learning. You just want to keep making it better. But the Iron Curse is available to, you know, go and take now if you want to dive in. And the Iron Curse webinar is available. So the webinar is a little bit different than the book because teaching a webinar lends itself to kind of different information than teaching in a book. They're both going to be, you know, unique, but different and wonderful, you know, and very similar, but unique and different in their own ways. So I would recommend doing both. The book is not published yet. It will be coming out within the next couple of months. But basically I launched, I've launched this course called Labrogenomics, which is basically, I got kind of tired of people just looking at genes and just looking at labs. And I wanted people to like look at them together because I think, you know, they're both extremely valuable individually, but if you add them together, it's, it's a whole new ball game and that's where the magic really happens. And so I launched this course called Labrogenomics and the Iron Curse was my first one. And then we just last month did the MTHFR one which was great. And then we have upcoming the third one, which is about celiac and Crohn's and gut. And, you know, that's going to be a great one because, you know, that's like me and my problem. <laughs> and, and also, you know, it's just, there's so much wonderful information there as far as not just labs and genes, but I also really go into like clinical pearls and, you know, just treatments and just so many different things that, you know, are so important for people to know and they don't know just like what we've been talking about today. And so, but my goal is to really, I've got a series of important health topics that I want to just keep kind of launching these webinars. And then I put them on that Labrogenomics website so that people can go back and watch them. Just trying to like educate people on using and being comfortable with teaching and understanding like labs, not, not teaching, I'm teaching them learning and understanding labs and genes and really like a holistic health approach. I want to make it simple, but powerful and relevant is my whole goal. And the Iron Curse book, like I said, that'll be out in a couple months and I'm super excited. We just got to, you know, get that last couple of hurdles and it'll be ready. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, we have the the webinars, a five series webinar. Uh, I'm, I'm going to watch it myself. I'm going to, I'm going to sign up for it myself. I'm super, I was already interested in the topic, but after today's conversation, I, I, I want to learn so much more. Oh, you're going to love it. It'll change your life. It's awesome. I can't wait. So we're going to put uh, those links down below in the notes of the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, it's down below as well. And then you also, so for those who want to understand the genetic component and the testing and, and under, you, you do some work on understanding those values, where, where do they go for that? Is it the same website yeah. or somewhere else? No, I go, I go into great detail about that in the Iron Curse webinar and book. Like it. it is a full, you, you get it all. It's all there. It's a lot. I love that you did that. So cool. We're going to put that down below. Thank you for doing that. I have one last question. So I, I think this supplement will lower iron and ferritin and, and, and lower your oxidative stress. Um, we didn't talk about it, but it's a supplement called vitamin G. 
and it's gratitude. It's the practice of gratitude, and I really believe it will lower iron. <laughs> uh, so my question for you, Christy, is what are you grateful for today? I'm grateful to be on this podcast with you because, like, I think you really get it, and your listeners and, you know, audience is really going to get it. And I think, you know, one by one, we'll kind of make a big difference and break the iron curse. And I'm grateful for you allowing me to talk to you and your audience. And, and you're so good at this. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. You are too. You're brilliant. And I'm also grateful that you came back and let's break that damn iron curse. I didn't even realize <laughs> it was getting me until today. So <laughs> now I know. Yep. Uh, we'll share this episode with a friend. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I mean, 30% of the population has at least one of those genetic snips. Um, so chances are you or somebody you know is dealing with this. So share it with somebody. And Christy, thank you. We'll put all your resources down below. Go get the book when it's out. Uh, search it. Where is it going to be released? On Amazon or bookstores? Where can I go? Yeah, it'll be on Amazon. And, um, you know, I'll let everybody know about it on my social media, all that junk. Where's the best place to follow you on social media so they can stay tuned for that? Uh, well, you know, I'm Christy, just Christy Sutton at Facebook. And then on Instagram and TikTok, it's at Dr. Christy Sutton. Great. We'll put that down below. Thank you, Christy. Thank you so much for educating. We'll bring you back for a round three in the future. Thank you. Thank you. You're awesome. Well, I hope you enjoyed that information and that conversation. It was eye-opening to me. I am determined to get my iron levels in a healthy range. And if you want to learn more about her Iron Curse webinar, click the link in the notes down below. I also included her celiac webinar and her MTHFR webinar. And stay tuned for her book coming out in a few months titled The Iron Curse. Her social media and her website can also be found down below. And if you want to watch the video format, you can find this on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash keto camp. Share this with a friend. Definitely share it with a guy who typ men typically have iron overload. So do postmenopausal women. So share it with somebody you know and consider leaving the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening from today. It'll help the show grow and reach more people. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with me and Dr. Christy. I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.